When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, this is Dan Lebetard. Thank you for joining us here on South Beach Sessions. And today we're going to talk to a genuine hero of mine. He was always better at writing as I was growing up trying to be a great writer. And then he moved on to do other things in his life beyond writing that are super meaningful and soulful and include an orphanage in Haiti. Mitch Album, as you know, is one of the best-selling sports writers of all time and beyond sports writing. Tuesdays with Maury, a spiritual book, is like the most successful book you've ever seen. Languages, numbers of sales. He is an immensely talented author who really reaches people with his work. And his latest book is called The Stranger in the Lifeboat. It's got, as his work often does, some real human and spiritual storylines. Again, a hero for a lot of different reasons, and even though I've always admired his writing, it isn't actually as deep and profound as his work away from writing. Here's Mitch Album. This show is presented by DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app. Download the DraftKings app and use code DAN to get in on the action. I will begin by way of hello. I will just simply talk at him because he is a machine who has taught so many of us in this business how to do this. And Mitch, I'm just coming in hot here without even saying hello to you. And I haven't talked to you in many months, but I've been eager to talk to you about a couple of subjects. I just two easy subjects for you, Mitch, love and giving your books and your life are a testament to giving your heart over to things and legitimately helping people in ways that leave me in awe. You're not taking over an orphanage in Haiti out of, as far as I can tell, anything but love. And there are many lessons people could learn from you. So anyways, I say all of that to say hello and to tell you that's it. I'm just going to ask you about love and giving in this one because I feel like life has taught you a lot on both of these fronts. Well, okay. That sounds like pretty good subjects to me, Dan, and I'm always happy to talk to you. You know that. We go back a long way. Well, what are you trying to do with your books at this point? Because your books, and I know I heard you on with Kornheiser, and I heard you talking about the distinction between spiritual and religious, but your books absolutely have a theme of uh, a universe warmth in them. So what are you trying to do with your books? Probably just provide some hope. I mean, if I had a synthesize it down to something pretty simple. A good story that's engaging, that gets people to go through from beginning to end. And when they're done, maybe surprisingly, sneakily, they feel a little bit better about themselves or the world or something that happened to them, uh, frequently loss. You know, I've gone through a lot of that myself and I've had to kind of figure out how you heal from that. And some of the ways that uh, I've learned, I try to kind of wrap into the stories that I write in my books. How do you heal from that? Because with grief... And this is heavy subject matter, obviously. And I said it was just going to be about love and giving. But when you did one of the biggest books of all time to start your book writing career, you chose to keep writing after that and keep writing 
hopefully after that, through what have been some really dark times and just not, I'm not talking about just in America, Mitch, I'm talking about you personally, you've, you, you carry a, a painful weight on you. Well, so do a lot of people. And uh, I don't think my, you know, my pain or the things that I've endured is any different than anyone else's, but there's something universal in all of it. So Tuesdays with Maury is what you're referring to as the first book that I wrote that kind of took me out of sports and uh, put me into this other new world. And, and honestly, Dan, I mean, I, when I wrote Tuesdays with Moore, I did it to pay his medical bills. And I wasn't really thinking that I was going to sort of stay in that kind of realm for a long time. I was planning on returning to sports writing. I was worried that Tuesdays with Moore would hurt my sports writing career because it would be seen as like soft or I don't know, you know, uh, something, something that would take me backwards. And then I began to notice this Tuesdays with Moore, which was a tiny book. I mean, nobody expected it to do well. And they only printed 20,000 copies for the whole world. And I'm sure they thought they'd get half of those back. But for whatever reason, it struck a chord, started to get read, got passed around, passed around, passed around. And then all of a sudden, I noticed that people who used to stop me in airports because of the sports reporters and would say, you know, who's going to win the Super Bowl? And you'd say Patriots and just keep going up the escalator. Now, all of a sudden, they were stopping me in the airport and they were saying, my mother died of cancer and the last thing we did was read Tuesdays with Maury together. Can I talk to you about it? And you realize you can't go Patriots and just keep going up the escalator. You know, you have to stop and engage. And I have stopped and engaged tens and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of times over the last 25 years in those kinds of stories. And you realize that, you know, a lot of people are dealing with a lot of uh, issues, you know, grief, loss, challenges. And so that becomes your world. You know, that becomes what you're interested in. And that becomes what you're interested in becomes what you write about. And so uh, I know I never wrote another sports book again, not because, you know, I wasn't still interested in sports, but when it came to the effort that a a book requires, you know, to really put a year or two into creating something just didn't seem significant enough to me to do that when I could be writing about some of these other subjects, you know, and uh, I was lucky enough to get into fiction and, and be accepted in that world and write novels in that world. And so now I, you know, write stories uh, that encapsulate a lot of those issues that I've been dealing with people for many years. Forgive me, Mitch. I'm going to give uh, the audience that may not know your history. I'm going to explain to them some of the work that you did before you chose this is work. Mitch Album was universally, annually considered the best sports writer in America because he was telling stories from Detroit that no one else was telling about hope and love and poverty and hurt and race from inner city Detroit in wonderfully rich stories that were tapestries that did real helping and healing in a city that can use helping and healing because Mitch, you have raised, I don't know how much money for the city of Detroit. I don't know how many families you have helped in Detroit with these stories that you would tell that you had a commercial arm of help that was being spawned by these stories you told in Detroit to help Detroit. Correct. Am I getting anything wrong there? Yeah, I uh, know you're well outside of probably being too complimentary, but factually you got everything right. And so tell me some of the work that you did to help Detroit and help Detroit's inner cities and care about a city, Mitch, that not a whole lot of people care about outside of that city. Well, that's easy to do when you live here because you know, Detroit and the state of Michigan sometimes feels like the rest of the country has abandoned us. And, 
especially in those early years when we never saw the national media except on the night before Halloween, which is called Devil's Night here. And they would send national reporters out and, and, and route around the city looking for fires so they could do yet another story about how Detroit is burning the night before Halloween. I mean, if you, you know, the fact that we have 63 fires every single night and in, in, in most cities do, too, didn't occur to them. And, and so, you know, when you see that kind of stuff happening, you get kind of defensive about where you live. And, and I've always been proud to live here. And I've started, I operate nine charities now here in Detroit uh, under a thing called Say Detroit. We raise money every year uh, through multiple means. Uh, we have an annual radiothon. And uh, last year we raised $1.5 million in a day. And that money goes right to help needy Detroiters. And so, yeah, I, you know, over the years we've raised well over 10 $15 million to uh, help things in Detroit. And, but I don't look at it, you know, I don't measure it by that or anything. This is just part of my DNA. It's part of what I think anybody who's been given the blessings that you or I have should do. You know, too often we're, we're always expecting some kind of accolade for it or, so, you know, uh, and, and uh, you know, I remember talking to a, a rabbi once, old rabbi, who, and I asked him, if you, uh, you think you'll got to talk to God ever in your life, you know, after you die. And he goes, well, I hope so. I said, well, what would you say? You know, you're a rabbi and you, know, you probably get the high slot. You get the first appointment. What would you say? And he said, well, I guess I, I would say, you know, I've led my life well. I've tried to bring people to you. I've tried to be kind to others. I've tried to, you know, do charity. I've tried to follow your ways. So now that I'm here in heaven, you know, what's my reward? And I said, what do you think God will say to you? And he said, I think God will say, what are you talking about reward? That's what you were supposed to do. And, uh, you know, I never forgot that story. And I thought, yeah, yeah, it is what we're supposed to do. It isn't, you know, like, uh, where's my humanitarian of the year award? And so I live in Detroit. And so I help Detroit because I can't. And Haiti, I fell into Haiti. But, uh, you know, it's where my heart is. And I operate an orphanage there. And I'm there every month. Uh, January would be 12 years that I've been there every month. We have 53 children at any given time. Uh, a number of them now graduated or up here in college. All of our kids have college scholarships waiting for them. And running an orphanage is, uh, is uh, a challenge, you know, especially now in Haiti. But it has taught me the most precious lessons of my life. It's given my wife and me the best moments of our lives, including a little girl who we adopted from there who... Uh, Unfortunately, had a brain tumor and, and didn't live beyond seven years old. But the years that we had with her were, were the best of our lives. And um, those kids are my life. And they teach me a lot of lessons. And the, they actually helped me write this latest book that I have out because I wrote a lot of it during the pandemic. I was down there and they would <laughs> they would gather, you know, if you've got a computer down there, you're, you're like, a, you know, honey to a bee, you know, everybody's buzzing around. What are you doing, Mr. Mitch? Well, I'm, I'm writing a book. What's the book called? The Stranger in the Lifeboat. Who is the stranger in the lifeboat, Mr. Mitch? I said, okay, there's too many questions. Take the book and go read it, you know. And I gave it to them early on. And, and surprisingly, they were really good editors, you know, and they made a lot of good suggestions. And, and I ended up incorporating them into the book. And I find it's a very inspirational uh, place to, to operate, especially if you're going to write books about. And here comes one of my kids right now. Uh, this is Geisen. I don't know if you can see him on the uh, yes, uh -huh. on the screen there, Hello, but uh, say hi. Hi. Geisen uh, is up for some medical tests uh, along with a couple other kids. So, And he just apparently 
walks in whenever the podcast is going on. So that's all right. But you know, I, I think you know this, Mitch, because you always know a good story. Like there is uh, late in your life here a Mr. Rogers quality to where it is the love is leading you to these gentle places. I've heard you last time you were on with us, you told us the story of yeah, walking through an airport and Patriots, Patriots, but at the yeah. idea that you would you that you'd sort of have to hide in your house a little bit because of the energy drain of if every time I go out somebody is going to put their grief on me and I have to accept it because it's the loving, decent thing to do, the size of that responsibility becomes a daily drain that's not manageable. Yeah, I mean that's true, and that did happen to me, especially you know in the in the five year, six year range of Tuesdays with Maury when. A lot of people had read it, and, and every, it was on a lot of people's minds. I've come to sort of accept that. That's uh, it. Just goes with the territory wherever I go. This little one who you who you just saw here was left at a tuberculosis clinic when he was maybe two years old. I don't know who brought him there. Somebody dropped him off and never came back for him. And uh, he dropped down to about fourteen pounds. And was, uh, uh, if I showed you the picture, you'd be horrified uh, when he was brought to us. And, and, you know, we basically had to make up the birth certificate, the birthdays, the age, all the rest of that stuff. And to see him thriving now uh, and to consider where he came from, all those sad stories that you sort of have referenced, they all kind of pale by comparison. This is what I mean by being in Haiti. I mean, we think we know poverty and then you see Haitian poverty. We think we know tough upbringings or circumstances and then you see these kids and so i'm reminded every month of of you know what life really can be like and how tough it can be and so i, I put it all sort of in i've just accepted it it's that's, that's who i'm going to be it's who i am i'm too old to change i'm going to uh, attract those stories but i also get to you know deal with stories like this and, and turn them around and that's a better feeling when you can somehow have some effect you know when you just listen to people's sad stories and you say, I'm so sorry to hear that. I, you know, I wish I could offer you some words of wisdom and there's not that much you can say. You feel a little impotent, but when you can touch a child and change it, give a child love and, and, and change the direction, you feel like you're doing the most important thing in the world. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida. But one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality, great taste, and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. 
Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. I've got a difficult question for you about the writing process because uh, what you're talking about here is deeply moving, and I don't know how much of your emotion is poured into your books. I know you are a master craftsman who, even if you weren't feeling something, could write something well enough to move others. But how often, when reading your own work as you write it, are you so palpably moved that you are in tears because of how important it is to for you to always crawl toward the hope toward where the hope is no matter how dark because you just mentioned poverty like if detroit poverty was easy i understand haitian poverty is an entirely different kind of poverty but the work that you're doing mitch can feel super hopeless and helpless because you can feel like the only one doing it because these kids are in disrepair when they arrive at your doorstep and sometimes it can feel like love's not going to heal them enough that there's not enough love in the world uh there is enough love in the world, uh, in my view. And and there's an endless supply of love, not from me alone, but our kids, when they come in, the minute a little new kid comes in, and there's that moment where whoever bought him, you know, the family member, relative, whatever, kind of is gone, is out the door, and you'll see that little kid will kind of look at the door and start walking to it. One of our older kids will go over and take that kid's hand and walk him or her back into the circle of the group because they've all been through it before. And you see that love spreads. You know, if you give love, it spreads to other people and and it grows exponentially. So I would say that there is enough love. But to answer the question that you asked just prior to that, yeah, in every book, there's sort of a moment where the point of the book for me, the point of writing the book for me, comes out in, in the form of some conversation or so. So, for example, in this in this new book, The Stranger in the Lifeboat, which is about this really rich guy who has a yacht and it's a luxury yacht. He invites all his rich friends on it and it, it, it explodes in the middle of the ocean and everybody's killed except 10 people, uh, five of whom are the guests and five of whom are the, are the help and the staff. And they end up in this life raft for three days. Nobody comes for them and they're out of food and there are sharks in the water and they're crying out for help. And then they see this body in the water and they pull the body into the raft and they start, it's a young guy, nondescript, average looking guy. And they start peppering with questions and, And he doesn't say anything. And finally, one of the passengers says, well, thank the Lord we found you. And he says, I am the Lord. And that becomes the pretense of the book that they're in this boat with this guy who claims to be God, but they don't believe him. And, uh, you know, they just think he's some idiot who banged his head. And and they go on desperate and running out of food and storms, getting attacked by sharks. And they still don't believe he is who he says he is. But there's one moment, you know, about the two-thirds way of the book where one of the passengers breaks down and, and, and says to him, if you're really God, you know, why did you take my wife? Why did my wife have to die? Because this has been the thing that's been haunting him, you know, his whole life. And the response is, why is it that when people die here on earth, the question is always, why did God have to take them? Maybe a better question would be, why did God give them to us? What did we do to deserve them, you know, in their time and their love and their memories? And, uh, He says, uh, I know that you cry when your loved ones leave this earth, but I can assure you they're not crying. Now, I wrote that and choked up at that because that was how I have come to have to deal with losing a seven-year-old child. 
I was very angry when that happened four and a half years ago. I was bitter at the world and the universe and God and everything. And I said, how can, how can there be a kind God who isn't kind to a seven-year-old, you know, who had to live through an earthquake when she was three days old? But I had to find some kind of place to heal. And my healing was exactly what I wrote, that, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't say, well, why, did, why was she taken from us? Maybe I should say, what do we do to deserve her? My wife and I were in our 50s when we finally got a child that we had sort of prayed for when we got married in our early 40s, in late 30s. And uh, all of a sudden we had this child and we had this amazing family. And all I want to do is look at why don't I still have it? Maybe I should be looking at it as why, you know, was I given it? And so that's one example of a very personal lesson that I kind of end up putting in the book because I know if, if it makes me feel better or if it brings me to the choking up point, almost crying when you're writing it, then maybe it'll have the same effect on somebody else. And for me, that's how I know I've written a book that at least uh, is something I feel is worthwhile and hopefully other people too. Your writing career has been fascinating to me. So please take us through though, where and when and how you learned, because before being giving Mitch album, you were ambitious conqueror Mitch album. I imagine before learning life's lessons, my guess is there's no way you could have been this good at uh, what we do that young, unless you were sort of like a, a monster machine of, of learning how to do what we do because you are a very young, great sports writer. So where did the lessons appear that made you realize, well, wait a minute, I need to be helping Detroit through this platform. I need to be doing more adult things. I need to be, you know, being at the side of my uh, mentor and teacher as he dies to, to yeah. remember him properly. Well, that that's an easy question to answer. That really didn't happen until uh, I saw my old professor, Maury Schwartz, and started going back and visiting him. You knew me then, although you were, you were a little younger than me, so you were just kind of coming out. But, you know, I was just work, work, work. I mean, I hope I wasn't an asshole, but I certainly didn't spend a, a lot of time thinking about helping other people. I just worked. I, I, I did three days a week at ESPN. I lived up there at Bristol, Connecticut, helping to launch ESPN2 when it began with Susie Colbert and Keith Oberman and I was writing, you know, five times a week. I had a radio show every single day. I did every kind of freelance thing. I'd never said no to anything because I was afraid if I said no, they wouldn't ask me again, you know. And then suddenly, when I was 37 years old, I saw my old professor talking about what it was like to die on the Nightline program with Ted Koppel. And, and uh, you know, I was like, wow, I've been so busy. I haven't even called. I didn't even know he was sick. I didn't even know he had he his ALS. And I had to find out through the Nightline program. So I was pretty ashamed of myself since I was very close with this man back in college. I mean, not just I took a couple classes. I was over his house. I ate dinner. We, we had lunch together. We walked around campus. I really thought of him as like an uncle. And then I had no contact with him for 16 years because I was so busy you know that free i'm just busy well you were hold and on so but, but you were a beast okay you're you were creating all the things i don't know where maybe you'll explain it to the audience where uh, afraid if i said no they wouldn't ask again i'd love to know where that came from for you but so the audience knows no you were not an asshole but you were a driven beast who was exceptional at this job and telling stories and was getting the most opportunities for platform that anyone in this industry would get because you had actors were coming on your radio show, which was being televised and ESPN was turning you into a sports writing star. And that felt like the height of happy for guys as ambitious as we were at that age. Right. And then, uh, I was sitting with Maury, you know, I started to go see him every Tuesday and, uh, 
you know, one thing led to another and he started asking me about my life. And, you know, he was teaching me what matters at the end of life when you really know you're going to die. And, you know, this was really the first kind of close up, slow burn mortality thing that I had ever seen in my life. I was watching somebody die week by week. I saw his decay every single week. And he used to do a breath test. He used to take a breath and how long he could hold his breath before he had to expel it. And that would be like how long he had left. And when he began, he think it was like a 22 and we got down to like four, you know, he would go oh, one, two, three, four, five, six, like that. When he was out, he'd say, that's how much time I have left. So I really was watching him die. And one time he said to me, what do you do for uh, your community? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, charities and your community, what do you do? And I said, I, I write checks. And he said, anybody can write a check. You've been given a voice and you have to use that voice for more than just aggrandizing yourself. And I remember that specifically because nobody uses the word aggrandize in a sentence except the college professor. And, you know, I felt very guilty and he was right. You know, I, I did have this platform and I was using it for all the things that you just said, but all those things just led back to me. And that year I formed my first charity, actually, 1995 in Detroit, something called the Dream Fund. And and I began to see how you can use your voice for the better, not just to tell stories that are moving stories, but are, you know, within your world, but stories that can galvanize people. And uh, in fact, the charity, Say Detroit, that I operate now, which is a multimillion dollar charity, began with a column during the Super Bowl. They were taking all the homeless people and putting them all in this one homeless shelter. And they called it a Super Bowl party. But really, it was just cleaning the streets of all the homeless people you know they didn't want them bothering customers and then on monday morning they were going to put them right back out in the snow so i went down to spend a night at a homeless shelter to write a story about how this isn't something you should give people for a night and take away you know this is you can't treat shelter like that and i didn't pretend to be anybody i wasn't i, I just when i stayed overnight i stood online i got my soap and my you know towel and and uh i'm waiting for the dinner and this guy in front of me turns around, he looks me up and down. He says, aren't you Mitch Album?" And I said, yeah. And then he looks me up and down again. He says, so what happened to you? And, uh, you know, I still have it when I remember it. But then I realized, well, that's a perfectly legitimate question. You know, I'm sure I'm sure he never expected to be on that line either. So I, I wrote about that and I wrote that we should try to keep these people in the shelter at least until the weather got warm. And that would require $60,000. And Dan, do you know that within... A week, maybe 10 days, I had $320,000 just from people sending in $5 and $10 and $20. And I said, what am I going to do with this? You know, it's way more than what we need or whatever. And I formed a charity called Say Detroit, which stands for Super All Year Detroit instead of Super for one weekend. And it's grown now from 2006 to it's in its 15th year. And it's, like I say, a multi-million dollar operation that runs nine different things in the city. But it just goes to show you that you're writing you know, can move people into action and then you can grow from there. As a mentor to me in many ways, because you were doing a simulcast radio show that was pop culture and sports in Detroit that helped you accrue this kind of influence and an ability to move and genuinely help people. I tell you that I need your help here because I believe 
that I could do a lot of learning from you in a lot of different realms, and this is certainly one of them because some of that, the sprawling nature of some of that intimidates me. And I know, I remembered, Mitch, you were doing this so long ago. I don't remember the details. I do remember that for some reason you were helping get a church in Detroit rebuilt and that something beautiful was born of that too that when you sprinkle a little love in your writing in some places that can use some giving generally what sprouts from that is something pretty hopeful that's true and uh, yeah it was a church that had a hole in its roof because it took care of homeless people as this old old beautiful old church but it had a massive hole in its roof and so when they would pray during the winter it would snow inside the church i'd never seen anything like it and they built a little plastic tent to protect themselves from the snow that came in from the roof on top of and I just, you know, the vision of that and seeing people praying in the snow inside an old church, you know, I, I got very involved with it. We ended up fixing the roof and I ended up writing a book called Have a Little Faith that kind of told the saga of that. But, you know, Dan, it just takes, when you think of it, you say the vastness intimidates you, but that's because you're thinking of it as vast. When I went to Haiti, I didn't say, well, I'm going to go to Haiti and find an orphanage and take it over. I went to Haiti to help some guy who had an orphanage. And one thing led to another, and I brought some people down, and one thing led to another. And one day he said, I don't have any money to run it. And I kind of blurted out, well, maybe I can run it. And <laughs> I got it. And, and then I had to figure out how to run it. So it's all, it's just one small step at a time. You don't race in and, and form a charity. You write a column, and suddenly people start asking you about it, and then you start doing more and the next thing you know you're, you're you're starting a charity and it grows so it's a series of small steps and i'm sure you have the fact that you're even asking me about it means you already have a heart for it and i'm sure that you can do great things in the in the florida area if that's what you want oh but mitch i've always admired you for a number of different reasons and my mother has never asked me to do anything like this i took her to see you one time at a church you were speaking at I believe I in Palm Beach, uh, my mother was insistent. She never needs like this, but your books feed a certain hope and intimacy in people. And I'm guessing you probably get criticized plenty. Ah, syrupy, ah, album bringing that gooey hope nonsense. Sentimental. Yeah, that he sells to mom, Lebetard's mom. He sells he sells that crud to Lebetard's mom, and it's and, <laughs> and she and she gets caught in the web of you know believing in God and believing in spirituality and believing in hope. But your work has been throughout my career something that I've been awed by what it's manifested. Detroit's a hard place to love like that, uh, to give to like that. The stories Detroit gave you helped make your career and the way that you gave back to that community is super unusual your story is a beautiful story mr mitch at in both haiti and detroit because you've you've served two communities that i don't even know how the hell mitch album's story ends up in those two communities given where it started well i i came to detroit for a job figuring that i'd be here two years i came to haiti just to help out a pastor figuring i'd never go back I've been in Haiti now over 150 times, uh, and I've been in Detroit for 36 years or something like that. So I don't know. It's where, you know, it's where life takes you, Dan. You know, I, uh, I'm one of those people that if I walk down the street and there's somebody who is homeless or is begging, I always help them because I figure there's a reason that they were put in front of me. Now, I'm not the kind of person who will walk two blocks over 
to go look and see, well, maybe there's someone two blocks over. I, I'd, I'd like to aspire to be, but honestly, I, I'm not there yet. But I am a person who, if it's right in front of me, then I think there's got to be a reason that this is in front of me. And it's the same thing that happened with coming to Detroit. It's the same thing that happened with Haiti. I, I just ended up there and then saw something and said, well, there must be a reason that I'm here. And that's usually good enough. You know, you, you find your meaning eventually um, <laughs> while you're busy look, looking for it it sort of finds you. And, uh, you know, it's like that John Lennon quote about life is what happens to you while you're busy making plans. I had plenty of other plans and, and yet here I am. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. What have you learned about giving and what has giving taught you? Maury once told me the phrase giving is living. He was using it to explain why whenever people would come to visit him, he would always end up asking them questions about their life, their problems. He would counsel them. He would advise them. They would cry. You know, here's this guy, you know, he's like this from, from ALS. He can't move his head. He can't, he needs to be carried to the bathroom. And, and he's asking questions to people and, and they're crying because they're opening up so much to him. And I, I said to him, I don't get it. You're the one who's sick. You know, why don't let the sympathy come this direction? And he said, Mitch, that just makes me feel like I'm dying. Giving makes me feel like I'm living. And, uh, when I watched that, I realized, wow, this guy is down to his final weeks. And what he's choosing to do, what he says makes him feel better, is actually not talking about his own problems, not talking about himself, but giving to somebody else. That must be true, even when we're healthy and even when we're young enough and, you know, and, and that, that they're alternatives. And I have found it, Dan, as corny as it may sound, I have found it to be true. I'm never happier than when I'm in Haiti. And I have many reasons to be happy here in America. You know, I've been blessed with a beautiful life. And, uh, you know, I, I have every material thing I could ever want. I, there's nothing I could even ask for. But I'm always happier in Haiti. And I always sleep better on a four-inch mattress, you know, in the middle of the orphanage with the heat. You know, the, the, we don't have electricity 12 hours a day. So, you know, you're lucky if the fans are working and you're sweating and you're, you know, you're, you're just trying to keep still because the sweat's pouring down your face. But I never use an alarm clock because there are squealing kids outside my window every morning saying, is he up yet? Is he up yet? You know, so you know, you, you, that's, your, that's your alarm clock. And, and you know that you're needed, you know? And when you know that you're needed, Life can be pretty pleasant, uh, you know, and, and uh, that's what I found. Mitch, you really are living your lessons. The lessons of your books or the stories that you're telling, uh, there's much beauty in the simplicity of both how you deliver the news and how simple the wisdoms are, right? Because I, I do believe, I marvel at all of it, right? The craftsmanship, small books, intimate books, books that are easy to read but take great care to sculpt something, to prune a tree that cleanly like that you pour your life for a year into the process of writing that thing and then it births bestseller after bestseller after bestseller and your ambition 
is it still in the same place? Because it feels like you've just sort of been following where the stories take you, living your life, and every once in a while really applying yourself to the need for writing again. But your life is now in giving, is it not? Writing just, yeah. just serves the giving, correct? Right. I would say that's fair at this stage. I mean, if I was as ambitious as I could be, I wouldn't wait several years between books, you know, or I'd you know, be racing out and doing every derivative or cottage industry thing there is. It's just, look, I'm not going to say it's not important. We all want to be successful. We all want to do well in our, in our careers. But, you know, I've passed my 60th birthday already. I, I am much more concerned about how am I going to spend the rest of my life? You know, what's my third act going to be if I'm blessed to have a third act? And I've already you know, been blessed enough to see what success is and isn't, you know, uh, and how quickly it can go away and, 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 and how little it soothes you when you, uh, you know, when you face with something really important. I, I, I don't think maybe I've told you this story before, but when our little girl Chica, you know, who I've got a thousand pictures of all over here, uh, when she couldn't walk anymore and she, uh, I had to carry her from place to place. She was dying from this brain tumor. And now she was perfectly happy with me carrying her from place to place and being her taxi service. That was, that was fine by her as long as she got to go where she wanted to go. And I was sitting with her over coloring upstairs here in the house. And um, I, I looked at my watch. I was late for this radio program I do. When I popped up, I said, Chica, I got to go. And she said, no, Mr. Mitch, stay in color. I said, Chica, I have to work. She said, Mr. Mitch, I have to play. I said, yeah, Chica, I, I know, but this is my job. And she kind of crossed her arms and she made that little pouty face. And she said, no, it isn't. Your job is carrying me. And, you know, after I laughed, because she just always made me laugh, then I realized, wow, what a sentence. You know, your job is carrying me. And I, I wrote about that and in the book about her. And I said, you know, what you carry, what you physically fill your arms up with, is who you are, you know, and for many years, I filled up my arms with my books and my newspaper column, my success, my, you know, awards or notoriety or whatever it is. And that's a lot. It's a lot to hold and walk around with. Uh, but then all of a sudden, a five year old comes into your life who's dying and you have to start traveling around the world to find a cure. And you spend all day on the Internet searching for immunology clinics and, 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 and new tests. The trials that you can get into, whatever, and you're carrying around a five and six and seven year old child, and you realize, no, that's what you're supposed to carry, and that was the best burden of my life. And when you've seen that, even though you know she's passed away now, and you know I've had to, we've uh, we both had to sort of learn how to deal with it. Um, you don't go back to like, okay, well, let's just go be ambitious again and and replace that with ambition. What you do is you try to find more children. And that's where our attention goes to the other 53 kids that we have to take care of. That's what fills your heart back up. And when you discover that ambition and success has its place, but you realize it's, it's, it's limited. You said, and what success isn't, and you really punctuated the, the isn't what success isn't you did arrive. I remember I've told people this story and I imagine you've had something similar happen to you. Times Square sports reporters, because of what you guys built there, when I arrived there at 29 or 30 years old as the hotshot young sports writer who still wasn't good 
as good as album is and was the younger, uh, stronger version of sports writing excellence as we chased it. I get to sports reporters, I look around and I have come over me some form of, is this it? Is this all there is? Is this the top? This is the place that I've wanted to get to. These guys are the these these are the guys. Like this is this represents the top of my profession and the top of my Cuban American parents getting me to freedom. I'm in Times Square. I'm near the Statue of Liberty. I get to speak my mind with the best. And I looked around and was like, "Is this it? Is this is this all there is?" And I imagine that mm. happened to you at at some point. It sounds like while you were sitting by your professor's bed. Yeah, it wasn't at the sports reporters. That's for sure. <laughs> but. Yes. You know, I think we all reached that point uh, at some stage. And I was lucky enough to reach it early on in my life because a lot of people don't reach it until their 70s or 80s. You know, uh, they don't reach it until they realize their mortality or they get that bad doctor report. And then they say, wait a minute, I haven't done this. I haven't done this. I haven't done this. I was 37 and I had somebody I loved and admired telling me, you haven't done this and you haven't done this and you haven't done this and you need to. So that was my luck and, and my great blessing to have that wake up call at that age. Telling you like that, a professor to have a professor be that much of a professor in his dying moments, Mitch, like that. It, it's just it's kind of unbelievable the way the story has unfolded, where you come from the principled place of let me just tell this man's story so that he could die with some dignity. And boom, it becomes the starting point of a, you know, a, a writing career unlike many others in the history of American writing. Well, thank you, Dan. I mean, that's that's kind of you. I feel like you're kind of overdoing my uh, my significance. But Mitch, but your, Mitch, Mitch, your success, okay, in allowing some people to grieve. You, I mean, you know the numbers of Tuesdays with Maury. There haven't been more popular books written. Like how many, in terms of just numbers sold, how many more books written ever have been, you know, just the way the measurements are, have been bigger than that one. And then every book you write after that is also a bestseller because of the following and the echoes of that one, where people go to your books and find hope. Well, I, I, I don't know the answer to that question, but, uh, you know, I'm happy to be part of that that universe. If, if I'm providing hope for people, that's good. I remember somebody once in my career, a critic was uh, taking a shot at me and they said uh, he's the king of hope, but in a pejorative sense. And I thought, well, I would take that. I mean, that's okay. I'm, I'm good with that. I'll, you can, that can be my tombstone. So, you know, I, I, I'm happy to be a part of it. But there are many other people who do the same thing in some other form and in the written form and in books. So, like I said, I'm just glad to be in the, in the mix. And if it, people feel better after they read my books, then I feel better. You know what? Forgive me for the indelicacy of this, because I don't I think there was a time that people would have said uh, Mitch Album's got a monster ego, a complicated ego, a difficult ego. I don't think you don't think about your legacy as a writer. You don't think about what it is that you've left behind. You don't allow yourself the vanity and the ego of that. You think you're just a vessel. No, I, I, I don't really think. My legacy is going to be in the kids that uh, that were taken care of in Haiti, and I hope that one of them one day becomes the president of Haiti. And when they say, "Oh well, who did you know?" and you know, "How did how did you uh, get to here?" you must have had some connection because in Haiti to do well, that you pretty much have to have a connection. And they'll answer the question: "I grew up in an orphanage." That'll be my legacy. Books fade, fame fades, trends fade. Uh, I don't know if I'll be in libraries 
years after I'm gone or if they'll do away with books altogether and they'll say, oh, he was he was a silly sentimentalist during during the uh, 80s, 90s and, and aughts or whatever. It doesn't it doesn't concern me. What does concern me is, is those who live beyond me, who were touched by me. And I'm trying to I'm trying to influence them in the right way. Mitch, before you leave here, uh, just tell the people how they could give to the things that you're about because you're trying to put your help in the right places. People who are moved by your story and what it is that you're trying to do. And I appreciate the honesty and the amount of time you've spent with us here because I know being at the, at the height of a bestseller is a busy time. Tell people how they can help you help others. Well, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, if they want to help out our efforts in Detroit, it's saydetroit.org. Uh, everything is there. And if they want to help out our efforts in Haiti, it's havefaithhaiti.org. So saydetroit.org or havefaithhaiti.org. We'll take it everything, videos, pictures, history. And 100% of what we raise in both operations goes right to the needy parties. I don't believe in administrative costs being paid for by charities. I pay all that myself. Uh, and so no money will go to paper clips or air conditioning bills or, or Xerox machines or fancy art in an office or anything like that. Uh, I just don't operate like that. So uh, thanks for that opportunity. And Dan, thanks for spending so much time and talking to me and uh, and talking about the new book. I, I sure appreciate it. Well, we didn't talk about the new book. I mean, you I, I didn't <laughs> ask you about the new book, but I just hope you know how much I admire you, Mitch. You are an inspiration, have been for a long time. Thank you, Dan. I appreciate it. I admire everything that you do. And you've done way more than I have in all the areas that I started. So I always looked at you as someone who said, well, I did this. And then Dan came along and, and did 10 times more. And no, I'm, but I'm not here. I need I need I need help here, though, Mitch, seriously. But we'll talk another time. We'll talk away from here because right. I, could, I could learn from you here as well. Thank you, sir. Good deal. Take care. A lot has changed over the years, kind of like who's the best hockey team in Florida? But one thing that hasn't, the great taste of Miller Lite. Another thing that hasn't changed is that it's less filling. So what's the best thing about the original light beer? Miller Lite sparked this debate in 1975, and we still haven't settled it. Right now, the great debate is if my team will make it past the second round. We can find about this all throughout the series, but there's one thing that's for sure. I'll be yelling at all of you while drinking a nice ice-cold can of Miller Lite. It's my preferred light beer when arguing about sports with other people. Miller Lite keeps it simple. Undebatable quality. Great taste and only 96 calories. It's the beer that strips away everything that you don't need and holds on to what matters most. You don't have to choose what's best. Miller Lite has great taste and is less filling. Tastes like Miller time. To get Miller Lite delivered right at your door, visit MillerLite.com beach, B-E-A-C-H. Or you can get it pretty much anywhere that sells beer. Celebrate responsibly. Miller Brewing Company, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. 96 calories per 12 ounces. Fewer calories and carbs than premium regular beer.